Occasionally I mention this, uh, even though I don't mention it every week, it remains true that I minister from a deep love for God, a deep love for God's Word, and a deep love for you as a congregation, and I do faithfully pray for you. The Lord reminded me recently that, uh, as reflecting on Acts chapter 6, the 12 said we want to give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of God's Word. And I know I've talked to pastors along the way, and they'll say, how much time do you spend in preparing a sermon? And they're talking about study. We probably need to also ask, how much time have we spent praying for our congregation? He mentions both. Maybe they should be almost equal. I'm not sure. I'm not ready to say. But uh, I do faithfully pray for you in your daily lives. And I'm not talking about general, but try to be very specific in what you are facing as an individual and as a family. I invite you to listen as I read from Psalm 51. And then we'll be going to Mark chapter 14. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me and I with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Do you freely go to God in confession, in brokenness, in humility when you sin? Now let's turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Reading together verses 27. Through 31. And this is in the context of the Last Supper. The Last Supper has been celebrated. They're leaving to go to the Mount of Olives. And in verse 27, You all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same We find in this passage the latter part of a sandwich is coming up. And by sandwich, we know we have bread, we have meat, and then we have another piece of bread. Something wrong here, Jer. Tonight's is coming up. But we find in verses 17 through 21 of this chapter... 
that Jesus said, the, I'm going to be betrayed, and Judas is the one who betrayed him. Then in verses 22 through 26, we have the Last Supper taking place. And then following the Last Supper, we find that Jesus says, the 11 are going to say they don't know me. So in the midst of betrayal, defection, we find the Last Supper, and Jesus is expressing his concern for them. And in that context, Mark is closing and expressing a love for the eleven. They're going to deny knowing him, but yet he goes to the cross. He's offering himself for whom? A group of men who deny knowing him. And notice that in verse 26, it says, after this supper, they had sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. So according to the map, we find that they had been in Jerusalem. And they go to the Mount of Olives and ultimately end up in the garden. The Garden of Gethsemane. So Christ has worship with them. They have celebrated the Passover. They're going to the Mount of Olives and again end up in the garden. And in that context, Jesus makes a prediction. In verse 27, you will all fall away, Jesus told them. I don't know if they're walking along or if they have already arrived at the Mount of Olives, but he he says to them, you will all fall away because of me. He's telling them what is going to happen. Now in that context, let's go back to Mark chapter 8. This isn't the first time Jesus talked about his death. He says, I'll strike the shepherd, you know, and the sheep will scatter. In Mark 8, earlier in the ministry, in verse 31... He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke to them about what was coming. What does Peter do? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Go to Mark chapter 9 and verse 30. A second time, Jesus speaks about what is coming. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And then in 33... Through 37, we find that there's an argument about who's the greatest. And in this passage, in chapter 14, Jesus says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And what does Peter do? He responds. 
Keep that context in mind. Jesus talks about what is coming, his suffering, the cross, the resurrection. And in each of the passages, they respond in a way that they just don't get what is coming. They don't understand. But Jesus knew the cross was coming. He knew denial was coming. He knew rejection was coming. He knew suffering was coming. The cross was coming. The resurrection was coming. But he says, you will fall away. Fall away means to cause to stumble. The passive tense. There's a lapse rather than a willful rebellion. It's not like the 11 are going to say, we want to fall away. More of a lapse that is taking place. There's a failure to watch, as Jesus had already mentioned in Mark 13, verse 9, verse 23, verse 33, verse 35 and 37. He told them to watch. But we find that they're not going to watch. There's an undermining of trust and commitment that Jesus endeavored to teach. Jesus had taught to 11 for three years to trust, to be committed to me, to follow me. He had warned them about the cross, the suffering, the death, the resurrection. They didn't get it. Falling away is undermining of that trust that he had so clearly taught. Like the 11, many times we do not plan to sin, but neither do we hold the fort when we should. Now please understand, Jesus saying to the 11, you're going to fall away. It's in the context of following a covenant meal. Where Jesus talked about going to the cross. Where Jesus said, I won't eat with you until I eat anew, you know, in the kingdom to That is going to come. The blood of the covenant. The bread. My body. You will fall away. Because of me. Don't be too hard on the 11. Because sometimes. We're very much like them. He goes on, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The idea of strike is to beat upon, to wound, by implication to kill, to slay. Who is the shepherd? We know that the shepherd is none other than Christ. I will strike the shepherd. It's an action of God. That others will do. Comes from Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. And we won't go into the context of Zechariah this morning. But God says, I will strike the shepherd. I will strike Christ. That's an action of God. Even though it's done by others. Again, that's a quotation from... Zechariah 13 and verse 7. In the context of God going to judge, but also in the context of God going to restore. I will strike the shepherd. There's a paradox 
where evil is used by God to fulfill a greater purpose. See, the evil that is taking place in the shepherd being straight or struck seems like a paradox, but God is using that for good, that's for profit, for the salvation of mankind. The suffering of Jesus is ordained by God. The cross, the suffering, his death was ordained by God. Paul, in Philippians 3 and verse 10 says, I want to know Christ. I want to know his sufferings. He says, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. As Christ suffered, I want to suffer. Do we as a church today have a passion to know, to experience the sufferings of Christ? We struggle with that because we see that as the 11 did as not being a good thing. They just wanted to put aside the suffering, the cross, and so on. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. See, Jesus had spoke about this before, but they didn't hear. Beware, watch, be diligent. But he says, I will strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered in this context. I think he's referring to the 11. They're going to be scattered. They're not going to follow. They're going to say no. Now I pose a question. The 11 were not willing to admit that they could scatter because that comes through later. You know, Peter says, I would never do that. And the other 10 say, I would never fall away. Are we willing to consider the possibility that we may drift away from God? The 11 were too proud to admit that. Just think about it. 11 men who walked with Christ for three years, and he says, you're going to fall away. And they don't take that very well. But Jesus goes on in verse 28. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. That's consolation for the 11. He will come from the dead. I will go ahead of you. The shepherd's going to be struck. The shepherd's going to suffer. The shepherd's going to die. But but after I've risen, I will go ahead of you. Yes, a prediction that you're going to fall away. The sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'm coming from the dead. I've told you this three times before. I will go ahead of you into Galilee. The shepherd will be struck. The sheep will scatter. But he doesn't forsake forsake the sheep. He comes from the dead, and he will go before them. Jesus sees renewal and completion of the call to discipleship. The kingdom of God that Christ brings cannot be scuttled by human failure.
He who first called the apostolic band at the Sea of Galilee will again call and reestablish them at the Sea of Galilee. It is there, not in Jerusalem or in the temple, that Jesus will reconstitute his followers. Like the prophets who foresaw Yahweh leading Israel back to the wilderness and again betrothing them or her to him, the resurrected Lord will return and reclaim the fallen disciples in Galilee. What encouragement! I will strike the shepherd, you will fall away, the sheep will scatter, but I will go ahead of you into Galilee. The body of Christ is not dependent upon our being free or the 11 being free from failure, but it's dependent upon Christ. Look at the history of Scripture, the history of the human race. Look at the failure in the Old Testament. Adam, Abraham, Jacob, Judges, Saul, David, various kings. But Jesus came. God is at work in the midst of human failure. The 11 falling away. The 11 being scattered. But we find in verse 29 some pride. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I'm not sure he said it quite like that. It probably was more like, even if all fall away, I will not. No, there's pride here. Keep in mind that Jesus, the Son of God, has spoken. And what's Peter doing? <laughs> Peter's denying him. Remember in Mark 8 when Jesus said, I go to the cross and Peter took him aside and rebuked him? Here he's doing the same in a little different way. Jesus has said, you will all fall away, all. That includes Peter. The sheep will be scattered. And Peter says, even if all fall away, I will not. See, in Mark 8, when Jesus spoke about the cross, Peter rebuked him. In Mark 9, when Jesus spoke about the cross, right after that, they argued about who was the greatest. In Mark 10, when Jesus spoke about the cross, Peter and John said, can we sit on your right hand and on your left hand? They just didn't get it. Peter still isn't getting it, that the Son of God has spoken. Peter defends his own cause. Not that of the other disciples. Do you see a selfish, self-confidence present? Do we ever display that kind of pride? Well, I'm glad I'm not like Rich. I'm glad I'm not like Ashley. Well, I'm glad I'm not like Ray. I would never want to do what... <clears throat> Alberta does. I would never do that. No, just pride in a little different way. 
Even if all fall away, the rest may fall away. I will not. Are we willing to admit our weakness, our struggle? Peter wasn't. But Jesus responds, the perspective of Jesus. The one who is the Lamb of God, the one who is the kingdom of God, the one who is a suffering servant says, I tell you the truth. And he's speaking to Peter. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows, you yourself will disown me three times. The statement is colorful and emphatic because the Greek word disown is held to the very end of a long chain of assertions preceding it. A threefold denial is not merely a slip of weakness. Three times hammers into Peter and I think to us as readers and to the Roman hearers, how quickly the most noble convictions can wilt before serious onslaught. Luther says that human will and human knowledge, though the most noble of characteristics, are ultimately fickle and blind and inclined to evil. We may have the most noble aspiration, as Peter did. But we know, Jesus said, no, three times you deny that you know me. It is of no use to protest that we have not committed the sins we self-righteously commend or condemn in others. The question is not what sins we have committed as much as what sins will we commit when faced with serious pressure, temptation, opportunity, and threat. Peter says, um, even if all fall away, I will not. And Jesus says, you will. Yes. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. It's kind of like dad saying to a son or daughter, here's what you're to do. And the child says, no. And dad again says, this is what you're to do. And the son says, no. And dad again says, no. No, Peter is just upping the whole process. It's for one thing for him to say, I don't know Jesus. And it's another thing when it happens a second time and then a third time. The pride and the arrogance is seen even more emphatically in verse 31. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. No, I think, you know, the, the volume and everything else increases. Those 10 might do it. But even if I have to die, Jesus, I'll never disown you. It's a pretty... Strong statement. No, his pride, his arrogance is really being obvious. 
Look at chapter 14 and verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. Three times he denied knowing Christ. In the end of verse 31, back of chapter 14, and all the others said the same. Each of the other ten spoke for themselves. We will not deny knowing you, Christ. But verse 50 says, Then everyone deserted him and fled. James Edwards says, and this is a fairly lengthy quote, in placing the Last Supper between the betrayal and the defection of the disciples, Mark vividly conveys that the many for whom Jesus pours out his life includes his own companions around the table. The sin that necessitates the sending of God's Son is not someone else's sin. The sin of Nero or a legion of tyrants ever since but the sin of the tenants of his own vineyard, of his own disciples, of Peter and James, of you and me. The essential evil in the world and the essential atonement for the evil of the world are present at the table of the Lord's Supper whenever it is celebrated. Jesus' self-sacrifice can be understood cannot be understood except as a consummation of the blood covenant first mentioned in Exodus. In this respect, the Last Supper is, in the words of Paul, a remembrance in which the offering of Jesus affects the final fulfillment of whatever the later blood sacrifice is dealt with only provisionally. At the same time, the Last Supper points beyond itself to the future unto that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. How crucial the word until. Despite the cowardliness, the treachery of the disciples, despite Jesus' impending agony of the cross, the final word of the Last Supper is the expectation of the coming kingdom of God. Those who partake of the Lord's Supper do so only as grateful sinners who stand between the times, between the once for all, Offering of Jesus for the many and its universal realization in the coming kingdom of God in that day. End of quote. The cross is for the eleven. Who said, or would say, We don't know him. Those that sat at the table with him, the cross is for them. The cross is for Peter who said, I will never deny you. The cross is for him. The cross is for the ten who said the same thing. We won't deny you. 
The cross is not for someone out there. The cross is not merely for your neighbor or that wretched person on the job or that fellow student that is terrible. The cross is for those of us sitting here today. The cross was for the eleven who have just stated, we won't deny you. What is the point of the passage? I'm inclined to think the wisdom, knowledge, compassion of Jesus stands in sharp contrast to the pride and arrogance of the eleven, especially to Peter. In grace, Jesus predicts his victory and restoration of the eleven. He is sovereign. His kingdom will come. Remember that child I mentioned that three times said no to dad? And dad later on says, son or daughter, I love you deeply. I care for you. A couple months from now, you'll be living and responding differently than you are at the present time. Several applications as we close. The Lord planned for Jesus to be struck, to be rejected, to be disowned. It was predicted years before it was reality. And think about the Roman hearers, the ones to whom Mark is writing. They're being persecuted. Some of them are lighting Nero's garden. Some of them are being torn apart by animals. With spectators enjoying it. How did they hear the passage? Our Savior suffered. We're following in his steps. We don't want to be like Peter. We don't want to be like the ten. We want to faithfully die for Christ. The Roman hearers were just hearing words. They're in the midst of a difficult situation. And Mark is considering them as he seeks to encourage them. Now, a word of challenge in light of our current culture. There may be some tougher times coming in our country for believers. Will we take encouragement from Christ? Not be proud like Peter or the ten, but just humbly say, Lord, I want to be faithful to you. And as we think about Christ being struck, think about the persecuted countries of the world. Think about Iran. Think about China. Think about Vietnam along with other countries where even today believers in Christ are suffering for Christ. What encouragement this is to them. Christ was struck. We too may be struck. Do we see suffering for Christ as part of God's plan? First Peter 4 talks about that. 
Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when men will persecute you and revile you. Our walk with Christ may involve failure, sin due to weakness or lack of alertness. But he, Christ, will continue to work in our lives. In grace, he continues to work even when we sin. Christ is not dependent upon how well we live, dependent upon what he has done. Ah, I got to do right, got to do right. How about saying I want to walk with Christ? And when the difficulty comes, then he can enable us. We humans, including pastors and leaders, and the reason I say pastors and leaders because the 11 were with Jesus. No, they knew him. They experienced him. Are very proud, arrogant, and self-confident. In our weakness, we will sin. Beware. I will never beware. The 11 struggled. We're free to admit failure, sin. And unwillingness to admit failure, sin, means pride continues to be great in our heart. The 11, Peter and the other 10 just kept going. We won't deny you. If Peter would have said, look, Lord, I heard what you said. You said, I'm going to deny you. I'm not going to argue with you. It's going to happen. He would have been in a much different place. We're free to admit we struggle. We're free to admit that we will sin. And the 11, we find, went through a marked transformation when you get to Acts. Don't make your goal not to fail or sin, but to know Christ. To focus on not failing or sinning means we're not walking in the Spirit, but in failure or sin. I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail. I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. Where's your focus? On sin and failure. Instead, we're to focus on Christ. I want to be yielded to you, Christ, so that when the temptation comes, I will recognize it. We're called to walk in Christ, in the Spirit, not in avoiding sin and avoiding failure. See, the unwillingness to admit that we sin and fail is just an issue of pride and arrogance. As it was for the 11. Christ is building his church in the midst of believers falling. Christ is building his church. I blew it. The 11 blew it. Christ is building his church. Well, look at that leader. They blew it. Look at that dad. Blew it. Look at that mom. Blew it. Look at that husband. Look at that wife. Look at those kids. Christ is building his church. He's at work. In the midst of human failure. That's why the psalmist said, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David knew that God was at work before he came on the scene. David knew that God was at work in the midst of his sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah murdered. So after his sin, he could go to God and say, God, I come humbly before you. And David's history, but Christ is building his church. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that many times we're like the 11. We think we won't fall away. We're proud many times. But in the midst of that, Father, we praise you that the church's well-being is not dependent upon us, but upon Christ. May we be willing to learn from what Jesus says and how the eleven responded and live in a humble dependency upon Christ. Not to be proud and arrogant and say, I will never, but rather to be humble before Christ, to be sensitive to the Spirit as we live in yieldedness to Him. Father, we do want to be faithful. We do want to live in surrender to you. And we praise you that in Christ you've given us the resources to live in obedience to Christ. But even in the midst of our desire to be obedient, we thank you for the freedom we have to come to you, Father, through Christ when we blow it, when we fail. We love you. We desire to be faithful, Father. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.